We'd like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continue to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brittany Eklund and I am here with Dylan Cave and our guest today, Dr. Chris Streamer. Dr. Streamer completed his master's and PhD in behavioral and cognitive neuroscience at the University of Waterloo and his postdoctoral fellowship at the Brain and Mind Institute at the University of Western Ontario. Currently, he's an associate professor at McEwen University's psychology department, and his focus is on how the brain controls various aspects of attention, perception, and movement. Thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so I guess before we dive into the science, um, first we want to learn a little bit more about you. So can you tell us what attracted you to psychology? Really what it came down to was, uh, one summer after high school in a really terrible job, realized I realized that, you know, I don't know what I want to do for the rest of my life, but I certainly don't want to do this. <laughs> I need to go back to school. My brother was in university at the time, my older brother, and so uh, he helped me enroll and, and get get into, into the program, into um, arts and science. I uh, took an intro psychology class with an amazing professor who really kind of sparked my interest in the field, um, and, and it kind of started from there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I started off like most psychology students do, thinking they're going to help everyone and save the world. Um, I say that tongue-in-cheek. That That's an important job, and there's really yeah. good people that do that, but I quickly realized that that really wasn't my my strong suit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I took a variety of different psychology courses, and I was taking some more in the clinical end of psychology, like personality and clinical psychology, abnormal psychology, and I wasn't as interested in those courses as I thought I would be. And then uh, I took my first course in the more kind of experimental end of psychology and and cognitive psychology. And uh, I I just, I did a really good job in the course. I really enjoyed it. My professor actually, you know, wanted to talk to me after the class about the paper that I wrote. She thought I did an excellent job. And she recommended that I kind of get involved in in maybe taking some higher level research courses. And so um, I took those higher level research courses. I found out that, you know, I really enjoyed it. I was pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, my first publication came out of a, a third-year undergraduate project that I did in, in, in that class. Um, so, you know, that, that just, you know, you, you go in expecting a sort of one thing, um, you know, thinking you want to do clinical, thinking you want to do more the, the kind of counseling end of it. Yeah. And then you find just through the university experience, right, taking different courses, you find out what your strengths are, what your interests are. And it took me in a totally different direction. Yeah, all the way to neuroscience, which is quite a big... <laughs> Topic, right? Yeah. Um, actually, you know, one other part of the undergrad experience that really sparked specifically my interest in neuroscience was I started off kind of more in cognitive psychology, trying to understand how the mind worked. And then uh, at that time, cognitive neuroscience was a really new uh, emerging field that was really kind of taking shape. This would have been the kind of the mid to late 90s. Okay. And uh, one of my most kind of formative experiences as an undergrad, other than those research courses I took, was um, at University of Saskatchewan, where I did my undergrad. Um, some of my professors were just starting to delve into fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. And so as an undergrad, as a fourth-year student, because I knew some of these professors, I was volunteering in their labs, they said, hey, do you want to be a volunteer to, to test out this equipment? I'm like, of course I do. <laughs> you get to see pictures of your own brain, right? Yeah, Dylan um, wants to see pictures of his own brain. Yeah, we, <laughs> on, on, one of our last guests on the podcast, uh, I mentioned that. Um, I just want to go get my brain checked because, you know, sometimes I'm not all there. <laughs> Proof of life, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, but no, that's really interesting. So um, this episode is part of our month of scholarship. So... I do want to talk a little bit about your Board of Governors tenure. Um, So can you tell us about that experience so far? So for someone like myself who works, most of my research is what I would call in-person research, where you're working directly with human participants, whether they're, you know, healthy undergraduate students or adults or patients with brain injuries or what have you. Um, and so, you know, a pandemic where, where people aren't allowed to meet anywhere close face-to-face for, you know, a better part of two years is not conducive to any, any kind of research. And so it was uh, part of my, part of my um, kind of 
focus for this research chair was to apply for a couple of major grants. I've applied for one of those. I'm waiting to hear back on it right now. So those are major undertakings that take a lot of time. Um, I've also wanted to, you know, get started again with in-person research. Um, that's been stalled again because of just the ongoing situation. Yeah, where we're all like experiencing. ongoing and ongoing. Ongoing and, and ongoing. ongoing. Yeah, so... <laughs> But, you know, one thing that's been um, pretty interesting that, that I've been able to get going is, is you know, you, use, using, I would say, uh, different collaborations and different technology to actually have an opportunity to offer my students different research experiences. So I have uh, collaborators in Ontario. I have collaborators in France. I have collaborators in, in you know, University of Calgary, University of Alberta. And so because of that, uh, sometimes you can get access to different resources. I've been applying for a lot of grants myself, but uh, with the pandemic, it's like, okay, so these are what we would like to do. And mm -hmm. then you have to like try and get uh, contingency plans that if, you know, maybe we can't get back to in-person learning. So you've, you mentioned some of the pros that you had having all these extra collaborators and things like that. So I, I just want to know, like, is there, has this kind of changed the path of your research on how you can interact with more people or is face-to-face -face still like a pr more preferred method of doing your research? Um, I, I guess what I would say is, you know, there's there's certain things I think you can only really do properly face to face, um, and, and, and that depends a lot on the techniques that you're using as a researcher, what types of technology you need to do the work, what types of responses you're trying to record. Right. Um, so, for example, if I'm doing non-invasive brain stimulation with with TDCS, transcranial direct current stimulation, it's a small um, brain stimulator you can use with saline soaked sponges and a nine volt battery, basically, right? So it's a really low current, you know, kind of two milliamps ish is what we use. Um, that's the kind of thing that we do in the lab that we want trained people doing in the lab. We don't want people to do a DIY TDCS at home and then yeah, talk to Zoom. us over Zoom or something, right? <laughs> um, I mean, hey, there's maybe a market for that, but I don't, you know, there's there's a whole kinds of things that could go wrong with that, and I don't want to be the one that finds out that it does. Mm -hmm. so. Um, <laughs> yeah. But so so the in person stuff, there are certain things you can only really do in person. Um, but but there, I think it has forced me to explore other options, and and one of them uh, being with you know collaborators, uh, you know, my uh, colleague at University of Calgary, um, he's running a major rehabilitation project there where they have, um, it's one of the, Calgary is one of the largest um, stroke programs in, in North America um, wow. at, at Foothills Hospital. The catchment area and the number of stroke patients they see is massive. And so um, he studies, you know, motor problems, movement problems after stroke. And so he's got people, any patient that comes into his, in, into the ward there that he's working with, um, he'll ask them if they want to be in a study. And if they are, he'll get them, you know, two weeks after a stroke, four weeks, six weeks, and then I think 12 weeks, um, and take a look at their initial motor um, problems and then take a look at recovery over time. And at the same time, he's collecting all those motor responses. He's collecting a bunch of different clinical measures as well. And so he's got this database of hundreds and hundreds of patients with these different measures. And so, you know, uh, my interest in the cerebellum, I asked him, well, do you have any patients with cerebellar injuries? And he said, well, yeah, actually we do have someone. He doesn't really study the cerebellum. So yeah. um, because of that, we're now working together. I'm taking some of those cerebellar lesion patients and taking a look at the data and seeing what we could learn from it. Um, that gives my students a great opportunity because now they get the opportunity to work with patient data, not to work directly with patients, because a lot of that research has been stalled, too, because of the pandemic. So the first project we want to talk about um, is all about attention, prism adaptation and spatial neglect. And I do see that you brought some prisms in and we'll throw some pictures up on our Instagram if you guys want to see sure. us checking them out uh, in a bit. But before that, um, can you explain this project okay. to us? <laughs> so there's a you know there's a whole set of different things that I'm interested in with this project. Um, at the fundamental basis of it, prisms allow us to study how um, the motor system can learn to adjust for errors that you make. And the brain regions involved in correcting for those errors and how correcting from those errors can have other benefits like um, altering our attention. And like so, what is like I can see mm -hmm. the prism because it's here with us. But can you describe, um, I guess, like what is a prism and how does it do that? Right. So in a basic sense, um, prisms, the ones I use in my lab, um, prism adaptation as a kind of field of study has been going on for, you know, almost a couple hundred years already. Um, started with Hermann von Helmholtz back in the 1860s, trying this out. Um, basically, these are a, a special pair of glasses that you put on that have lenses in them that shift your vision in a particular direction. 
So the ones that I have in front of me here and the ones that we often use in patients with spatial neglect, which we'll talk about in a minute, are uh, what we call rightward shifting prisms. So these are these kind of thick lenses that have a thick base on the left and a thin base on the right. And what happens is the light that's reflecting off of surfaces in the environment, they come in through the lenses into your eyes. And then uh, because of the way the lens is created, it shifts everything rightward of where it actually is. Kind right? of like the effect that like water has... You know, you, if you like look in water and you see a fish in water, if you like go to reach for that fish, it's not actually in that position. It's yeah, it, just, it disturbs angle. the light a little bit, right? Or, or perturbs the, the light as it's, as it's entering the eye. And so these lenses are, are doing that a similar sort of thing, but in a way that you can, you can control and calibrate in terms of um, which direction and also how big of a shift, right? So these ones here, these are uh, what are called the 25 diopter prisms. So these are about a 12 degree visual shift to the right. Um, so, you know, if you put these on, basically um, imagine that you're, I think the easiest analogy to kind of do with this is a dartboard. And they actually did this in one of the old studies that, that looked at this. So imagine you're wearing these prisms. Oh, before prisms, um, you know, you have people throw darts at a dartboard. They're not trying to hit bullseyes. They're just trying to hit the board, right? So basically if you hit the board, you hit the target. So you're throwing darts and you're hitting the board just fine because your eye-hand coordination is working just fine, right? You get people to put these glasses on that shift your vision, let's say, you know, 12 degrees to the right, and now their hand is still calibrated to where their eye was before they put the prisms on, right? It's calibrated to the old setting. And so when they go to throw the dart at the dartboard, they miss really far to the right. <laughs> it's like missing the board entirely over to the right. And so, you know, typically if you were doing this, if you were throwing darts and you're like, oh, crap, I missed really far to the right – the first thing you do is like, wow, I got to throw further leftward to make sure I hit the board mm -hmm. next time. And so what you find with these prisms is that for the first few throws, they're missing really, really far to the right. But eventually they learn, the participant learns through feedback um, to correct for those errors, to adjust their movements further leftward to compensate for that rightward visual right. shift. And so it's this learning process that the brain goes through to have to learn through, um, f through trial and error, through feedback to adjust your movements to compensate for this new eye-hand coordination setting that's been forced on them with these prisms, right? And so, you know, after, let's say, five or so throws, they might start hitting the board. If you get them to throw about 50 times, um, at that point, you've had a lot of learning that's gone on. And if you ask the participant to take the glasses off at that point and then throw the dart at the dartboard again with the glasses off, what do you, what do you think would happen in that case? I think they'd probably have to readjust. Do they? Because like I want to gut instinct say they wouldn't because the glasses change the perception of what they're seeing. But if you took them off, I think it's, it's like a muscle not memory the thing. perception because you're seeing what's actually there. But I think your muscles are used to <laughs> seeing it and throwing it. And All right. Dylan says uh, they miss. I say they hit. So... Tip, if, if the person has actually adapted to the prisms, usually they would miss. Oh. Um, and so, ah. so, so think about it. So think about it this way, right? So people get confused with prisms because they say, "What's well, a rightward shift? They're gonna they're gonna miss to the right." Well, what ends up happening is because of this rightward shift with the prisms, people miss to the right, miss to the right, and then through more and more throws, they have to learn to adjust leftward to compensate for that rightward visual shift. And so they've learned this new eye hand calibration, right, to adjust further leftward. So when you take the glasses off. The vision isn't disturbed anymore, but their old memory of linking the eye and the hand with that rightward shift is still there. And so when they go to throw it at the dartboard, they actually miss to the left because ah. they had to learn to adjust leftward to compensate for that rightward visual shift. It's about the learning process that goes into that. You know, every the entire time we've been thinking about this prism thing, I've just been thinking about Mario Party. And that might be a weird thing, but there's this one mini game in Mario Party where your character spins on a record player really yeah. fast. I, I have kids, I've played it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and then you you have to, you're, you're, it seems like you're drunk, right? Like it's your, your character is moving in every different direction and you have to try and steer in the opposite directions and yeah. things like that. It's like a moving target of this prism. Yeah, and so, so, you know, and there's similar mechanisms involved in learning something like that, right? So basically prisms is a tool that researchers can use as a way of trying to understand how the brain learns to compensate for movement errors, right? It's, okay. just, it's just a specific tool that, it, that they can use to understand that in the lab. Um, now that we know what the prism is, um, can you explain to us 
how you have been um, looking at them in regards to spatial neglect and spatial bias. And first, we probably need to know what those are. Sure, yeah. So so it's funny. There's, you know, uh, present adaptation was a whole area of research that was going on for well over 100 years before before it ever got applied to spatial neglect. But I came into it from the spatial neglect side because as a graduate student, I started at the University of Waterloo. I was working with Dr. James Dankert. He's a neuropsychologist. Uh, who was really interested in studying patients with spatial neglect. And, and uh, there was a really f- amazing work that came out in the late 90s um, and early 2000s as I was starting graduate school that showed that prism adaptation could actually be used to help patients with neglect. And so um, just so, we, so we're clear on what, how this kind of links up here, um, spatial neglect is a disorder that arises following brain damage. Um, it's much more common after a right hemisphere brain injury than a left hemisphere brain injury. And so these patients with spatial neglect, typically it's a lesion in the right side of the brain, typically around the temporal and kind of parietal lobes where those two lobes meet. Um, If people kind of know their neuroanatomy at all, uh, (laughs) if not, you can look it up. Um, But, you know, so those right temporal parietal lesions, these patients often behave after the lesion, especially, you know, shortly after the lesion, as if the left half of the world just doesn't exist anymore. And so these patients... um, if you ask them to, you know, in, in cases where they're severely neglecting, um, if, they're sitting, if they're laying on their hospital bed and the door for the room is on the left side and a family member comes in, they'll say, you know, to try to say hello to them, they'll try to interact with them, and the patient will ignore them. They'll act like they're not there. Um, it's not because they can't see. They're not blind. It's not because they can't hear. Their auditory system is working fine. But they're unable to process information on the side opposite the lesion. It's an attentional deficit where so a patient is not able to be visually aware of. It, it can and actually, audible? It can be multiple modalities. So okay. it's most commonly studied in the visual modality. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's well known that you can have multimodal neglect. So there's patients who will basically ignore anything to the side opposite their lesion. So if they have a right hemisphere lesion, they'll be unable to, you know, um, be aware of things visually on the left side, auditorily, um, even touch sensations on that side will be ignored. Even if their somatosensory system is working fine, they don't have any problem with their, with their sensation. Yeah, what okay. a scary feeling. It's weird, yeah, and it's 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 hard to it's hard to explain it to to people who don't know it, and it's actually hard for the patients to describe what that deficit is to people mm-hmm. who don't understand it. So when you work with these patients, you ask them, you know, have you noticed anything? You know, what's the what's the biggest problem you're having following your? Typically, it's a stroke that leads to it, um, and they say, you know, I don't really see good on the left side, and their their vision's actually fine. There's no blind spots. Some of the patients will have visual deficits as well, but the visual deficit alone won't explain. The, yeah. the size of the deficit they have. And so they say, I don't really see well on the left, but it's actually not really a visual deficit. It's an attentional deficit where their attention system isn't able to process anything on that contralesional side. And so, you know, uh, as a disorder, I find it incredibly fascinating, right, to, to, to un- try to understand how this operates in the brain, to try to understand what this tells us about how the brain is organized. Um, you know, when you see these patients at the bedside, it's so obvious too, right? So you can do something like um, give them a sheet of paper with a line on it with just a you know, big, long black line on it, and you tell them, I want you to take a look at this line. So you put it right in front of them at their body midline, and you say, I want you to mark where you think the center of the line is with this pen. It's the easiest job in the world, right? They'll mark it way over to the right side because they're neglecting the left side of the line, so they believe it's you know, halfway on the right side. Wow. Um, if you give them you know, uh, a drawing, like a, you know, a picture that someone's drawn, and say, I want you to draw this, I want you to copy this. That's actually a pretty common test you can do with neurological patients to take a look at how they see the world. Here's an image, you know, like a uh, outline of a five-pointed star or a cube or a flower or something, and I want you to copy it just by drawing it on this sheet of paper for me. And you'll find out that these patients, they might draw the right side of the image totally fine, but the left side of the image is totally missing. Mm-hmm. And it looks, and you ask them, are you done? Does it look good? Oh, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm done. It's fine. And then you point it out to them, well, you're, you're missing everything on the left side. And they seem like surprised. Oh, yeah, I guess I am. And they'll start drawing it again. Then they'll just, again, stop. Um, it's it's as, if, as if it doesn't exist to them at all on that side. And so the, the thing that makes this disorder fascinating, in addition to the fact that it's weird, right? Yeah. Um, and it's hard to really even imagine having that problem, is the fact that it's incredibly common after right hemisphere stroke. So, um, you know, stroke is the leading cause of adult neurological disability worldwide. Yeah. Um, and, you know, depending on the studies you look at, anywhere from 50 to 70% of patients who have a right middle cerebral artery stroke, which are one of the more common strokes to have, 
um, will experience symptoms of neglect at least at least some point after their after their stroke. So it's um, it's a really debilitating disorder, as you can imagine. These people, you know, they start they can't really navigate the world very easily, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they won't even eat food on the left side of their plate. Sometimes they won't dress the left side of their body. Um, they try to go through a door and they'll hit their left side on the door, for example. So they're not really independent in that sense. Um, this is why I think I need to get an MRI. Sometimes I just bump into things. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. And so um, getting back to prisms. Yeah. Uh, so so the reason I got interested in prisms initially was that there was some work coming out um, if, in France from a from person who's a colleague of mine now, Yves Rossetti, uh, in Lyon. And what they found was that, um, you know, you can actually use rightward shifting prisms to try to rehabilitate or at least reduce the symptoms of neglect. And that sounds counterintuitive, and I'll try to unpack the mm-hmm. logic of it for you. So um, in patients with neglect, as I mentioned, they they ignore the left side of the world, right? Yes. And so, if you ask a patient with neglect to, if you ask, well, let's start with healthy people first, right? So, if you ask a typical, you know, individual without brain Me. injury, yeah, um, to close your eyes and point straight ahead, so you can't see. If you point, close your eyes and point straight ahead, you tend to point, you know, straight ahead of your body midline. So, if you imagine where your sternum is in your body, mm-hmm. that's your body midline. We call that the egocentric reference frame. If you want to use a really complicated term okay, to explain I like something that. simple, yeah. <laughs> You got to make up complicated words for things that sound sciencey. So, yeah. Uh, so egocentric reference frame is basically you know the center of your body and how everything is aligned to that, right? So if you close your eyes and ask someone to point straight ahead, they tend to point straight ahead from that that center point of their body, um, because that's where the center of the world is, right? Mm-hmm. According to them. If you ask a patient with spatial neglect with a right hemisphere injury, who ignores the left side, where do you think they're going to point if they have to close their eyes and point straight ahead? To the right. Exactly to the right. Because they're ignoring the left side, so their entire world has been shifted to to the right side. I'm starting to see these prisms. Oh, yeah, the <laughs> these prisms. I'm getting it now. You're getting it. So, so these patients are, you know, they're ignoring the left side. They're biased to attending to the right side. They're over attending to the right side too much. That's where that attentional bias comes from. Right? Yeah. What's called a rightward attentional bias. And so. Um, you know, part of the issue is that not only are they ignoring the left side, which is a big problem for them functionally, but they're almost over attending to the right side. And part of it might be this shift in their egocentric reference frame, this shift in where they believe the center of the world is according to their body over to the right side. So they point really far to the right when you ask them to close their eyes and point straight. And so, well, um, how can we adjust that? Well, one of the things you can do is you can get them to use prisms that shift their vision to the right into their good field, their non-neglected field. And when they reach to, let's say, a target like this or you know, throw a dart at a dartboard, they're initially going to miss to the right just like the healthy person did before that I was talking about yeah. for the first few throws or the few, first few reaches to the target. But then after, let's say, you know, 40 or 50 movements, they're going to learn to adjust their movements leftward to compensate for that rightward shift. So they're adjusting their movements leftward towards their neglected field to adjust for that rightward shift. So what's really amazing is after you adjust these patients, after you adapt them to these rightward shifting prisms, you ask them to close their eyes after they've done these reaches, let's say 50 times, and you ask them to point straight ahead again. And now, where do you think they point? To the center. Yes, further leftward, closer to the center. Closer to the center. Because they've had to learn to adjust leftward to compensate for that rightward visual shift. And so if you do that, what you find is that following prisms, after you take the prisms off, you give the people the same test as before, where you give them the line to mark, or you give them the, you yeah. know, the, the targets to cancel on the sheet of paper. And now what you find is that they start marking the line in the center of the line or closer to the center. They start um, canceling out those targets on the left side they were previously omitting. Um, they start drawing the left side of those figures that they were missing beforehand. It's as if you recalibrated their attention leftward, and now you've brought that kind of back into their awareness for some short period of time. This is so interesting. Like, it seems like such a simple concept. They are shifting everything to the right. So let's shift their vision to the left or, you know, like counterbalance what they're doing. That seems like such a, but it's so not simple, but it's simple. Yeah, I mean, you know, so neglect is, is you know, something that's notoriously difficult to rehabilitate. Um, and one of the key reasons is because of the fact that patients, as I sort of alluded to earlier, they're really unaware of their deficit in most cases, right? So that's another part of the deficit is that not only are they ignoring things on the contra lesional side, in this case, you know, the side opposite the lesion is what that yeah. means. So they're, you know, if they have a right hemisphere lesion, they're ignoring things on the left side. Um, not only are they doing that, they tend to, in most cases, be 
have little insight to the fact that they're ignoring things on the left side because that left side just doesn't exist to them anymore, right? And so if they don't even know what their problem is or that they're not they're ignoring the left side, it's really hard for them to compensate for that. So yeah. um, you could tell them, and there's types of training that do this, where they say, look to the left, look to the left, look to the left. They try to get them to consciously kind of shift their attention to the left. But as soon as they do that, for a while, they forget about it again. They shift back to the right. Um, with prisms, what you're doing is you're, you're changing how the information gets processed as it's coming into the brain from the bottom up. And they don't need to be aware of the fact that that's what's going on. So you adjust their vision rightward into their good field. Mm-hmm. They have to learn through those movements to adjust further leftward to compensate for the misses they're making to the right. And now their egocentric reference frame, the, where they believe the center of the world is according to their body midline, also gets shifted leftward towards their bad side to their affected side. And so now you start seeing these symptoms of neglect get reduced. And so would, would a person who is experiencing this wear these glasses all the time or is this like a training and then they would wear them just a little bit a day or something like that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a training that people do. So typically, because um, it's not really wearing the glasses that helps, it's the adjustment you make in response to wearing the glasses that helps. And so the after effect, what we call the after effect, the learning effect of it is when you take the glasses off, and you have, you know, that, that setting that, you know, before the healthy participant I was talking about when they, were, when they were wearing the glasses and it was shifting them to the right with the dartboard and they were missing to the right. And you take the glasses off after 50 throws and then they throw again, they miss to the left. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, that effect, that after effect, the miss to the left is what we're going for with, with patients with neglect. So you take the prisms off and then they've, again, had to learn to adjust leftward. But that after effect, how long it lasts, tends to be quite a bit longer in neglect patients than it does in healthy adults. And it's not exactly clear why that's the case. Part of it might be the lack of awareness they have of the fact that they're even being shifted in some cases. Wow. So if you put in, uh, I've seen this in my own eyes. Again, it's, it's anecdotal, but it, I've seen it in at least, uh, you know, the couple dozen patients I've worked with over the years. Um, if you put these glasses on a healthy adult, as soon as you go to make a reach, you're like, oh my God, like something's really off. You notice yeah. right away. It's not subtle. Um, in patients with neglect, many of them don't have that same response. They seem to be unaware of the fact that they're missing or that they're even having to adjust for it. So it seems to be done almost more unconsciously, more more implicitly. Which works better for them. And that's, yeah, and that's one of the one of the theories as to why it might work better for them is because um, it's it's... They're, the theory is that there's different parts of the brain that are involved in that more implicit type of motor learning as opposed to that more conscious kind of supervised type of motor learning. Wow. Um, the cerebellum is thought to be involved in, in that more kind of uh, cerebellum and basal ganglia involved in that more uh, implicit kind of uh, automatic non-conscious type of motor motor learning. Okay. Unreal. Yeah, no, that's really interesting to me. Um, I'm hoping I'm not going into, into too much depth here. but No, no, because I feel like I'm understanding everything that you're saying, and that's okay. perfect. Well, um, if, if you don't, please, please ask, because oh, I, 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 yeah, I want you to be able to understand. So, yeah, we've talked a little bit um, about the tasks. So this kind of research, um, how does it fit into the larger body of research on this topic? Like, what... Why choose to to work with prisms in this particular context? Right. So um, initially, as a graduate student, I got started using prisms because I was really interested in learning about how they could be used to try to reduce some of the symptoms of neglect. I should point out that they're not a cure for neglect. Yeah. Um, they don't make neglect go away like waving a magic wand. That's not really nothing really works that that way with neglect. Um, but you know, there there is some good evidence that it does reduce the symptoms of neglect in these patients. And if, if you have more and more treatments, it can have a longer lasting effect. Yeah. Um, so that's where my interest started. Where it kind of grew into was trying to understand, um, you know, how the, how the brain is being affected by the prisms that leads to these beneficial effects. And also what we can use from this to learn about how attention and, and motor control work in the healthy undamaged brain. Okay. And so um, another caveat to this is the, you know, the opposite of this, right? So in healthy adults without any brain injury, um, we have a, a phenomenon on average, what people call pseudo neglect. So a sort of false neglect, right? In the sense that um, healthy adults typically, uh, in, in mostly in, in stronger effect than right-handers, which are 90% of the population, right? Um, so what they find is that, you know, in that, in that line by section test I was telling you about earlier, we have a, you know, line on a sheet of paper and you just have to mark the center of it, right? Um, you don't just do that once. You usually do it 10 or 20 times to get a mm-hmm. kind of a good measure of an average response. So in patients with neglect with a right hemisphere brain injury, they missed or they, they bisect it really too far to the right because yeah. they're ignoring the left side. In healthy adults... 
um, what you find is the somewhat opposite of that, where healthy adults will tend to bisect the line instead of right in the center, they'll bisect it a few millimeters to the left of the center. Yeah. Um, on average. And that's thought to be reflective of the fact that we have this right hemisphere of the brain that's dominant for spatial and attentional processing. So the left hemisphere of the brain, or some people call the dominant hemisphere. I don't really like that term, but I study the right hemisphere more, so I'm, I guess I just get, I make it sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, the left hemisphere of the brain is known to be involved in things like language and mathematics, right? Fine motor control. Um, whereas the right hemisphere of the brain is thought to be involved in a lot of those nonverbal types of skills like spatial processing, face processing, attention. And so the theory behind student neglect, why we have that leftward bias on those things like line bisection, is that our right hemisphere is dominant for attention. And so because of that, we're always paying maybe slightly more attention to the left side than we are to the right, even mm -hmm. if we don't know it. And so what's happening, they, they're suggesting, is that the left side of that line, because we're paying more attention to it, it almost like our brain sort of exaggerates the length of it a little bit in our mind. And yeah. so we think it's further away to the left than it really is. And so that's why we bisect the line to the left of center. And I mean, so, if you've ever tried to cut a cake and you're like, oh, I really thought that that was going to be nine even pieces. And yeah, it is truly crazy. Yeah, especially when uh, especially when you've got people that are belonging on you to try to be fair, too. So my yeah. kids will always let me know how poorly I've cut something and how unfairly uh, yeah. uh, well, scaled the slices even, are. honestly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm really happy that other people have to cut my pizza, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, my I, my pieces just, would be all over the place. Just get get one of those miter saws with the laser <laughs> the laser on them. Um, so, so, set yeah. So, with uh, so in healthy adults, we tend to have this slightly leftward bias, right? And so, um, what you can do in healthy adults is you can adapt them to prisms and create almost a small kind of neglect like behavior in them. So, what mm. you can do is in healthy adults that have no brain injury, you can give them a leftward shifting prism. Right? So if you ask healthy adults that, again, have no brain injury, like I mentioned before, you ask them to close their eyes and point straight ahead, they point pretty much right straight ahead of their body midline. Mm -hmm. right? But if you give them a leftward shifting prism, so in the opposite direction, and you have them like reach to a target or you know, your dartboard analogy again, um, they're going to miss to the left, so the opposite of what we did before, because now we're using a leftward shifting prism instead of a right one. Yeah. So now they're missing to the left, and so in order to compensate for that, they have to adjust rightward in the direction... Um, that neglect patients mm -hmm. will point before prisms, right? So if you ask them to, let's say, do 50 throws or 50 reaches, you know, with leftward shifting prisms on, and they learn to adjust rightward to compensate for that leftward shift, you ask them to close their eyes after those 50 movements and point straight ahead. Now, where do you think they're going to point? To the right? <laughs> to the right. Opposite the prism, right? It's always yeah. in the direction opposite the prism. So now these healthy adults have adjusted rightward to compensate for that leftward visual shift. And after prisms, they're pointing to the right as where they think the center is, just like the neglect patient did before yeah. they had prisms. And so if you test healthy adults with these rightward, with these leftward shifting prisms, you can adjust people rightward. And then you can see that when you get them to do things like line bisection, um, their bisection of the line will also go further to the right. Further to the right. Um, not, like, not, not nearly as big as a neglect patient would, obviously. Yeah, you don't have a brain but. injury. But a statistically significant shift to the right. Um, you can do different types of attention tasks that look at you know, reaction times for left versus right-sided targets and find that um, patients can sometimes uh, change how quick they are to react to things on the left versus the right side mm -hmm. following prism. So it allows you to actually look at how um, the attention system and the motor system are linked and by altering one of those two, the motor system, through this uh, prism adaptation procedure, how that can carry over into actually influencing the attention system as well. So it allows you to take a look at how those two, because the brain networks that are involved in attention, many of those same brain areas are also involved in movement. Yeah. Um, in fact, you know, one of the theories behind what attention is, some, some researchers will say that attention is not even really a thing, um, that we just make up <laughs> terms for what we, what we want to study. But some researchers will argue, and I think, you know, I'm not sure if I agree wholeheartedly with them, but I think they have a, a good point, is that, you know, um, attention is really what they call intention, right? So the only reason that you attend to something in the environment is because you intend to act on that object. Mm -hmm. And so basically the idea is that if I'm a, you know, because we're, because it's, uh, because it's still in the, in the throes of the pandemic here, I've got yeah. a, I've got a uh, bottle of uh, hand sanitizer just in front of me. Um, so, you know, the, the theory would be that, you know, if I'm looking at this hand sanitizer, I'm attending to it, but I'm really attending to it because I want to reach out and pick it up. And so the attention part is really the motor system's preparation to act. 
but we've just divided into something that we call attention. And so there's different people that have different theories about whether that's you know whether that's correct or incorrect. But I, but there is a good reason to believe that attention started as the intention to act and then we just have more conscious control over it mm -hmm. um, which is explaining why a lot of those same brain areas are involved in both movement and attention because they're you know serving a lot of the same purposes or a precursor to the same purpose why wouldn't you just make prism glasses then like sometimes they have corrective shoes where one's bigger than the other mm -hmm. why not prism glasses that people could wear forever so they do, I mean, you, you can purchase prism glasses. Usually you have to be a quote unquote, you know, professional to purchase them. Um, so you can't just go to like, you know, Shoppers Drug Mart and get them. Um, part, part of the reason for it is that, you know, um, you worry about people not actually doing it properly. So they're not just supposed to wear them all the time. They're supposed to, you know, be in a safe environment where nothing bad can happen if they're wearing them. Because when you're wearing them, your, your eye-hand coordination is thrown off. You could run into things. You could get in a car yeah. accident if you're driving. You could injure yourself, all kinds of, and then you got serious liability issues, right? So part of it is making sure that it's supervised by someone who actually knows how to do it properly. Um, and on top of that, there has been, you know, uh, different clinical trials that have showed differing levels of evidence as to how effective they are long-term for okay. patients. So some studies say that they are effective. Some say that they are not as effective as people believe they are to be. Um, the, the, the problem with some of those studies is that there are some patients who seem to respond very well to them. And there are some patients who don't tend to show as strong of effects over the long-term. And that's the part that people are still trying to figure out is, you know, what is it that makes this particular patient may be particularly responsive to the prisms and have a big benefit from them, whereas this other patient didn't have as strong of a benefit to them. Is it something to do with um, this type of brain lesion they had? Is it something to do with the type of deficits that they have? Maybe if it's really severely affecting their vision and, um, you know, because they have damage to visual areas of the brain and their attention system, maybe that's what's causing the poor outcome for them. Yeah. And so if you just take a, sometimes if you take a really big study with a whole bunch of patients that have a bunch of different neurological problems in addition to neglect, it's not always clear why some are having a beneficial effect and others aren't. And that's what they're still sort of trying to tease apart. That um, all makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, let's take a break. Do you like beer or burgers or brunch or all three? Well, check out Campio Brewing. It's one of Alberta's newest breweries, and it's the fourth brewery in the Bear Hill Brewing family. If you're a teetotaler, no worries. Come for the deep dish or swing by for brunch. You don't have to drink to enjoy yourself and support local. Find them on Instagram, Facebook, or at campiobrewingco.com. Welcome back. Um, so getting right back into it, we'd like to hear more about your research. Um, with those lesions that we were talking about, right? Cerebellar lesions. Celebra cer cerebellar lesions. You gotta say it with an accent, I guess. Um, can you tell us about maybe why you chose to study this particular topic? I first got interested in the cerebellum because it's an area of the brain that is known to be really critically involved in something like prism adaptation. So in uh, the cerebellum is known to be involved, um, and it's been, this has been known for you know 250 years, um, as a structure in the brain that's critical for, for the timing and coordination of movement and also for motor learning. So, um, and, you know, based on research I was reading as a, as a PhD student, I knew that damage to the cerebellum prevented people from being able to adapt to the prisms. They never learned to adjust in the direction opposite the prisms, and they never showed that after effect. So you could have a patient with a cerebellar lesion um, who had, a, let's say, a rightward shifting prism on. They were throwing prisms at, at that. Oh, sorry, throwing prisms. Don't do that. They'll break. <laughs> Um, they were throwing darts at the dartboard. Uh, and so, you know, before the prisms, their darts are kind of all over the place because their cerebellum makes their coordination and movement kind of poorly coordinated. Um, and then they put the prisms on, let's say a rightward shifting prism. They miss even further to the right. So the visual input of the prism still affects their accuracy, yeah. but they don't seem to be able to reduce their error. So they don't really learn to adjust leftward to compensate for that rightward visual shift. Mm. Um, and, it, and some of the patients will adjust a bit, but not as much as a healthy adult. Yeah. And then when you, let's say after 50 or 100 throws, you take those prisms off and then the patient with a cerebellar lesion, in most cases, they won't show the after effect. So in a healthy adult, if they've adjusted leftward to compensate for the rightward shift in vision, then they'll miss the dartboard to the left after they take the prisms off. Um, the, the cerebellar patients won't show, most of them won't show that effect. And so basically... 
I mean, it, it prevented people from being able to, to learn to adjust for those movement errors. So that's what got me interested in initially was how it played a role in, in, in motor learning and prism adaptation. Uh, but then I started doing some more reading and there was some really kind of new work coming out at the time. This would have been the kind of late 90s, early to mid um, kind of two th- 2000s, right? Where um, people started talking a lot more about how the cerebellum was involved in much more than just just motor control. Yeah. People thought it was involved in actually a whole variety of different cognitive um, cognitive functions. So, like what? <laughs> yeah, sure. Go like on. What? Like what? <laughs> um, okay, um, I'll bite. Uh, so, <laughs> so, um, so I mentioned. Remember, I mentioned before how um, maybe I, I think I mentioned this before. I can't remember if we were talking about this, you know, amongst us or if it was online or not when we were recording. But I think I, I did mention how. Um, and if I haven't, I'll say it now. Mm-hmm. The brain structures involved in attention are also many of the same brain structures involved in movement. Yes. Right? The cerebellum is a movement structure. That's part of that motor control network. It's actually one of the most ancient parts of the brain. There are species that have that are much, you know, less sophisticated in terms of their nervous system that will have, you know, a brain stem and a cerebellum, but won't have really what resembles a cerebral cortex like we have. So evolutionarily speaking, it's one of the oldest areas of the brain. Okay. Um, it has more neurons or as many neurons in the cerebellum as the rest of the entire cerebral cortex combined, even though it's quite small, they're it's densely, densely packed with neurons. So tons of computational power, right? And as brains and cerebral cortex get larger in species, their cerebellum tends to gauge, uh, kind of um, um, size up as well, tends to correlate with that, so they increase in size. And so, uh, you know, getting back to the idea that the you know, motor structures are also involved in cognitive functions like attention, I started doing some reading about, you know, studies showing that at that time, at least at the cerebellum, the cerebellar patients, in addition to the movement symptoms they were experiencing, some of these patients were showing difficulty with things like spatial processing, with language, um, with working memory, so being able to keep information in your memory, you know, for let's say okay. 30, 30 seconds at a time, you know, uh, when it's not present anymore. And so people got started to get interested in, you know, well, what, what is it about the structure that might play a role in? Number one, you know, is there is there really a role for the cerebellum in cognitive function? Because um, that's a big question because, you know, you're, you're going against 200 plus years of research that suggests it's strictly a motor structure. Yeah. Um, and no one's saying it's not a motor structure. It absolutely is. But it seems to do a bunch of other things as well. So I started getting interested in, wow, this is a whole new avenue of research that's opening up here for the structure that has thought to be really constrained to this one function for, for a long time. And so my own interest in attention, obviously, and, and the brain circus that control attention um, got me interested in the role of the cerebellum in attention. And so um, towards the end of my PhD, I started working on, um, with a, with another colleague of mine, uh, looking at patients with cerebellar injuries and how that might affect their attention. Um, and then as I uh, did my postdoctoral fellowship at, at Western, um, one of my, one of my uh, functional MRI studies looked at um, in healthy adults, um, if you could take a look at different parts of the cerebellum or whether parts of the cerebellum were involved in attention um, after you control for motor output. So one of the things that that people kind of got hung up on with the cerebellum, and for good reason, you know, you have naysayers who who want to make sure that if you're saying something bold, like this structure that's involved in motor control is also involved in cognitive function, one of the things you have to ask is, well, how are you measuring cognitive function? Yeah. And if the measurements you're using are requiring motor movements to indicate the response, then the injury to the cerebellum could be affecting the movement they're making that looks like cognition, but it's really just a motor problem, right? So if you're, for example, if you're, if you're, um, you know, measuring reaction time and having them press a button, well, maybe they're just slower at pressing the button because of the movement problem they have, and not because of something to do with attention. So diagnosis seems to be problematic in that case. Uh, it's 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 just trickier. You have to be aware of that limitation and and know how to control for it so you can rule that that out, right? So um, with fMRI, what you're basically measuring is the magnetic properties of um, deoxygenated hemoglobin. So hemoglobin carries um, oxygen around in the blood system. Yeah. And so uh, when the brain starts, the part of the brain starts to work really, really hard, it uses up the local uh, oxygen stores really quickly. And then it sends a signal um, to, the brain sends a signal to say, you know, send more blood over here with lots of oxygen and I'm running out of fuel. And so it sends lots of oxygen rich blood to that area of the brain. And you can, the magnetic properties of when those hemoglobin go from uh, having oxygen attached to not having 
having oxygen attached after the fuel is used, it changes the magnetic signal and you can detect that in different parts of the brain. So you can say, where is that change in signal from oxy to deoxyhemoglobin the largest yeah. in these conditions? And if you have that, then you can figure out what parts of the brain are more active. The most, most important thing to keep in mind with fMRI is, and I try to teach my students this too, to ask themselves this question every time they read a study like that is, they say there's you know, more activation in this area or less activation in this area. The next question you have to ask yourself is, compared to what? Okay. Um, so there always has to be a control condition that is closely matched to the experimental condition you're interested in so you can rule out all, because there's, there's tons of brain activity going on all the time for things that have nothing to do with the task. Yeah. Right? Even just you know, looking, sitting here in the studio looking at you two right now, um, I'm getting auditory activation in my brain from what I'm hearing. I'm getting visual activation from seeing light reflecting off of you know people and objects in the environment. Um, I've got activity about what I'm about to say next and what you know so conversation it's a I'm guessing having. Game of what what without a control condition it would yeah. be because all those parts of my brain are doing all kinds of things simultaneously. Right, the classic fMRI. Uh, approach is what's called a subtraction methodology, where you say, show me the brain activity when they're, when they're doing this task that I'm really interested in, and then subtract away the brain activity from the control condition where it's very similar, but missing that one thing that I'm interested in. Um, you've walked us through kind of what got you interested in this, but can you walk us through the research? Um, so, you know, one of the first studies we did in, in um, patients with cerebellar lesions was we found that um, cerebellar lesions seem to um, affect their what we call reflexive attention. So, uh, one of the more popular theories of attention and how it operates in the brain is um, these two attention networks, what are called the dorsal and ventral attention networks. Um, but the, the dorsal and ventral attention networks has really just to do with where they're located in the brain. Dorsal means higher up in the brain, ventral means a bit lower down. That's where the terms come from. But basically, one of these attention networks, the dorsal attention network, is thought to be important for um, basically deciding where you want to shift your attention and what you want to attend to for actively attending to things on an ongoing yeah. basis. So right now, according to this theory, my dorsal attention network, my voluntary attention, where I'm choosing to pay attention is to the conversation, to you know what we're doing right now, right? Whereas this more um, ventral attention network is thought to be more involved in what we call reflexive attention or more automatic type of attention. Um, the theory is that it acts as a, what we call a circuit breaker to interrupt your current focus of attention to get you to refocus on something else that might be important. So, for example, if we have one of those terrible McCune fire alarms um, <laughs> that goes off and, you know, that, that sound initially be like, oh, man, what's that, right? And, and so it automatically jars you out of what you're currently thinking about to get you to focus on the sound of that alarm. And so the way we test that in the lab is by having people, um, you know, respond to targets that appear on the screen, but we have it preceded by a, a bright flash either on, either on the same side of the screen the target appears or on the other side of the screen. And then what you find is that people are faster when the flash is in the same location the, the target appears because your attention already gets grabbed there. And you can even have it really quick. Like you can have a flash and then 50 milliseconds later the target appears and people are still faster to respond because their attention is drawn to that flash so quickly. Um, whereas a voluntary type of attention, you don't use flashes, you use other kinds of symbolic cues like an arrow in the center of the screen pointing left or right and people have to look at the arrow and decide, oh, I have to shift my attention to the left or shift my attention to the right. They have to kind of choose to attend there. Or you can have numbers like a one means left or a, you know, a mm -hmm. seven means right or something. Um, but what we found in, in our cerebellar, uh, initially in our first group of cerebellar patients, um, was that reflexive attention seemed to be impaired in these patients following cerebellar injury, um, such that they uh, were slower to to shift their attention from um, from the cued location, uh, sorry, from the uncued location to the to the uh, yeah. to the where the target was. Mm -hmm. What we also found in an fMRI study, I was sort of alluding to what I was doing as a postdoc, um, was that you know in healthy adults without any brain injury, if you do an fMRI study where you have them do either that reflexive attention task with the flash flashes are on the left or the right versus a more voluntary type of attention, we have the arrow pointing to the left or the right, and you compare activation in the cerebral cortex and the cerebellum, what you find is you get all the normal areas in the, in the cerebral cortex activated that you'd normally get, like you know areas in frontal lobes, areas yeah. in parietal lobes that we know are involved in attention that have been studied for you know 20 plus years. Um, what we also found was that there was activation in the cerebellum, in the left side of the cerebellum, that was um, for, for those attention tasks, even when you subtracted out the motor response requirements. So remember that in the scanner, they're pressing a button to indicate that they detect the target. That's a yes. motor response, right? And so we had another condition. We had a few control conditions, but one of the control conditions we had 
was where they had to just um, there was a the cross in the center of the screen with no targets, and every couple of seconds that cross would kind of flash, and you'd have to press the button to tell us that they saw the flash. So they'd be pressing the button the same number of times over the same time period, but they get the same motor response. So you can take that activity and subtract it out of the attention yeah. task to get rid of the motor response and just get the attention part. Um, and that's where we found that that cerebellar activation in the left side of the cerebellum in healthy adults and the um, the part of the brain in the left cerebellum that was active was more active for the reflexive attention task than it was for the more voluntary attention task, which kind of matched up with what we saw in patients where, um, again, it was the reflexive attention that was, that was impaired in them. Yeah. And like this study, um, you guys found for the first time, right? That oh, this the cerebellar was, regions may be involved. Uh, th no, th th this, this, though, there had been some, uh, some people, so I didn't discover that the, for the first time that they might be involved. So, so people had suspected that the cerebellum was involved in attention for a while, but there was a lot of naysayers because of the reasons I pointed out yeah. earlier that, um, you know, maybe it's just motor responses. Another motor response that the cerebellum is involved in is eye movements. So, the so when you have damage to the cerebellum, you can also affect the person's eye movement coordination. Yeah. And we know that eye movements are strongly tied to attention. So a lot of the same parts of the brain that are involved in eye movements are also involved in attention. Yeah. And so that's another thing that we did with, um, with this cerebellar study was we used an attention task where they didn't move their eyes around. They had to focus on that cross in the center of the screen and just pay attention to things happening in their peripheral vision. Um, in the fMRI study, we had another control condition where patients had to, or in this case, sorry, healthy participants had to either um, just make a button press when they saw the target or make an eye movement and the button press. So we wanted to look at, are the areas of the cerebellum the same for attention and when they're making eye movements? And we found that, in fact, even when you subtract, um, even when you control for eye movements and you control for the button presses, the same part of the cerebellum seemed to be involved both for the eye movements with or without attention. Yeah. So, so there's a lot more going on there. <laughs> yeah. So basically, what it what it means is that, um, you know, think about it like this, right? So, it, it what it suggests is that for reflexive attention, the role of the cerebellum in reflexive attention is one that might piggyback on its existing architecture to control eye movements, right? So if you have a part of the, and just think about this from a neural engineering standpoint, right? From a conservative neural engineering standpoint, if you're going to design a brain area that's involved in attention, and you've already got brain areas that are involved in moving the eyes around, which are critical for shifting the focus of attention. Yeah. Why wouldn't you piggyback on those areas that are already involved in eye movements to help them become part of that attention system? They're serving many of the same functions, right? So it actually makes very good intuitive sense that the areas of the brain that are involved in shifting your eyes around to control the shift of attention in the real world would also be involved in attending to those locations. So in this case, it's part of what I talked about earlier, that premotor theory of attention, they call it. The yeah. idea that um, that you know, people who are kind of hardcore motor control people will tell you that attention is really just the intention to act. And so in this case, the cerebellum is involved in controlling shifts of the eyes, eye movements from one location to another in concert with other brain areas. And so the role of that area in attention might also involve the circuits that are using it to control eye movements, right? Because it doesn't make sense to have another area of the brain that does the same thing as this other part is already doing. It's yeah. actually a waste of space, right? What a, we don't have a lot of space. That's, that's, <laughs> no. what I, that's what I meant earlier. Like, I had no idea what's going on in here, and it's so complex and so, like, once you learn about it and what, once you see actually all the really unique things that our bodies are built with, you're just like, man. You guys kind of did the first comprehensive examination of um, spatial, temporal, and sustained attention following yes. cerebral damage. So yeah, yeah. I kind of want to know... Um, why might there not be more studies looking at the cerebellum in this context? Right. So I think um, what we wanted to do with these patients was, so there was some evidence that, you know, in isolated studies that like, you know, we had shown there was some effect of cerebellar injury on reflexive attention. Another study uh, back in the uh, late 90s had showed that as well. But then other studies came out showing there wasn't any effect with cerebellar injury on attention. And then other people came out and said, well, it could be the motor responses that are being affected here. So there was, there's still an ongoing debate as to, number one, whether it's actually involved in attention or not. And number two, if it is, what types of attention and what parts of the cerebellum are involved, right? And so that's where we sort of want to kind of take it next. Okay. So we uh, studied a series of uh, 14 cerebellar patients, uh, which doesn't sound like a big group. And it's not a huge group, but um, cerebellar patients aren't 
incredibly common. So we want to study patients that have an isolated cerebellar injury without injuries to other parts of the brain, because then if you're trying to convince people that this part of the brain plays a role that no one thought it played and they have damaged other parts of their, yeah, you have other parts of the brain that are damaged. They're going to say, well, how do you know it's not that other part in the cerebral cortex that's damaged? So you have to have isolated cerebellar stroke patients. It doesn't have to be stroke, but typically it is because it's, again, the leading cause of adult neurological disability. But it's something like, I think I was looking up the stats at one point, something like less than 3% of all stroke patients are are cerebellar, isolated cerebellar stroke patients. So, so from that perspective, you know, um, it's, it's, you have to study them over a few years even to sometimes get this many patients, right? Um, So we, we wanted to test in, the, in these patients because um, we had reflexive attention that was impaired in one of our studies, but we didn't ever test voluntary attention in that group of patients. We had the fMRI study in healthy adults that showed that reflexive seemed to be more engaging the cerebellum than, than voluntary. So we, in our patient group, said let's test reflexive and voluntary attention to kind of replicate that effect and, yeah. and show that that is solid. And then we also tested, because that's more what we call spatial attention, attending to you know the left side or the right side where you're attending in the environment spatially. And so what we found was that uh, in, our, in our group of cerebellar patients, we replicated our kind of earlier work showing that reflexive attention was impaired in these patients. Voluntary attention, uh, not so much. Um, it, it, it was hard for us to say that it wasn't impaired at all, but because um, we didn't really have a big enough patient group to conclusively demonstrate yeah. that. So I would say that you know it, it has a variety of implications depending on on what what kind of take you want to you want to have with it. So um, what we were able to show in our patient group was that um, we replicated our earlier work on sustained or, or sustained attention from an earlier colleague of mine. Um, sorry, on uh, temporal attention from an earlier mm-hmm. colleague of mine. So um, we replicated that work in a different patient group. We replicated our problems with uh, reflexive attention in this patient's, uh, group of patients from an earlier study. So we further verified those results suggesting that they're, you know, that they're common in these patients. Um, what we were also able to show is that the same brain area in the cerebellum that was involved in, in temporal attention was also involved in spatial attention. So it seemed to be the same parts of the cerebellum that one injured were causing these problems. And it was more so in the left cerebellum than the right cerebellum, which is interesting. And the reason that's kind of interesting is because if you think back to what I was talking about earlier with the with spatial neglect and the parietal lobe and attention, right. the right hemisphere is thought to be dominant for attention in their cerebral cortex, right? And when you damage the right hemisphere in the cerebral cortex, you cause these attention problems. So yes. it kind of makes sense that the left cerebellum that's connected to the right cerebral cortex would be the one that's more involved in attention and spatial processing. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not the only one that's found this uh, yeah. with spatial processing. Other studies have found it too. I was uh, This study, though, was one of the first to link it from a, from a brain lesion standpoint where you can actually correlate the, the area of the lesion in the left cerebellum to the problems with oh, the tension okay. that they're experiencing. Oh, yeah. so, that's, so that's one part of it. Um, the other part of it is... Um, you know, this is part of a larger kind of area of research of mine where I'm just, again, trying to understand how the brain controls attention, how it controls movement, and how attention and movement are linked. And so this is a brain structure that is a movement structure that also plays a role in attention, That things like prism adaptation as well, right? And how we can learn about how these systems are organized by studying damage to this one particular hub in the motor system that also seems to play a role in other cognitive functions. The way I sort of explain it, this is my own fascination with it, right? It's, it's almost like the ultimate kind of reverse engineering project, right? So you think about if we engineer a new car or an aircraft, we know how that works because we designed it to work for that purpose. We created it, right? We didn't do that with the brain. Yeah. We have the brain that we have. We've inherited it over millions of years of evolution. And so the only way we can really try to understand it is through reverse engineering. If your car won't start, well, what could it be? Well, it could be this, you know, f- could be could be the ignition, could be the battery, it could be all kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, but you have to troubleshoot to try to figure out what part of the car is broken so that you can then fix it. Um, in our case, we don't, for the brain now being the analogy is we don't have that blueprint for the brain completely yet. And so we're still trying to figure out how the brain operates by studying the effects of what happens when something goes wrong. So if the brain is injured and it causes a set of symptoms, then we can understand what parts of the brain are responsible for those behaviors. And that allows us to number one, better understand how the brain operates when it's functioning normally and also potentially how to rehabilitate the patients better. And um, by just understanding the deficits they're experiencing more, how to focus our rehabilitation efforts more specifically. That's amazing. I think we're running out of time today. So um, we're just going to leave you with one more thing. Just like if there's there's like one last really big point that we didn't get to cover today. Uh, there's one thing I could tell people I would say that, you know, don't 
don't take your brain for granted and don't underestimate how incredibly important it is. Um, people get blown away when I say this sometimes, and, and they might think it's really, really reductionist of me to say it, and I'll say it anyways. You know, everything you think, everything you do, everything you are, every part of your personality, every part of your, you know, memory from the past, everything, even your ability to imagine the future, all comes down to firing of neurons in your brain. And you can see that by studying patients with brain injuries who who don't have that ability anymore, right? And so, um, you know, don't take it for granted. Take care of it. And, uh, and you know, hopefully we'll be, as a society, uh, better at, at funding research that, that will help people understand it better to help understand all those different types of problems that, that people can have. Well, Dr. Streamer, thank you so much for joining us here today. This has been yeah, another, thank you so another much. awesome episode of Research Recasted. And uh, we couldn't do Research Recasted if we didn't have uh, awesome guests to interview. So thank you again. Um, I don't know if you want to take us out. Thank you for inviting me, uh, yeah. and it's, it's been fun. Yeah. Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If today's episode blew your mind, please follow up with the links in the episode description to learn more. If you want to keep picking our brain, you can visit us at Research Recasted on your favorite podcasting platform to catch new episode every two weeks. Also, check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by me, Dylan Cave, and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are done by me, Dylan Cave, with research. Copy editing, scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producer is Ray Bree.